We're in Romans chapter 8 this morning, so if you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. Romans chapter 8. This is our last week in Romans 8. I think this is the fifth week we've been in Romans 8, but it's such a great chapter. We're in verses 31 to 39 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one under one of the seats around you, and you can turn there and follow along. As you do, I kind of want to also make a little side announcement of where we're going from here. I mentioned when we started Romans that Romans is like a roller coaster. There are thrills and there are chills. There are things that are really amazing, and one of those texts is what we're going to look at this morning. But there's also some texts in Romans that are very confusing and difficult and hard, and you almost get frustrated with it. Maybe the next few weeks are going to be more like that. We're going to feel the G-forces as we're turning around in Romans 9 and 10 and 11. What we're going to look at is the relationship that God has with Israel that is both true Israel, national Israel, and the Gentile world. And what is this relationship that he has with these people? Again, with his chosen people, but also with the rest of the world. But we'll get into that. But I wanted to say, uh, it's kind of one of those buckle your seats because it's a little bit of a difficult few chapters. But wanted to let you know about that. And I'm excited to see what God uh, teaches us through those chapters. But this week, again, we're in Romans 8, 31 through 39. Why don't I pray and then we'll get started. God, we come before you and we're just grateful to be able to gather together as your people this morning to, to sing songs of worship to you and to set our hearts and minds and attention on you and to sort of cast all the cares and anxieties of this world onto you because you care for us. We can't handle or deal with the things that often plague us throughout our day and throughout our weeks, but we know that you can and that you are good and that you're powerful and, again, that you care for us. And so this morning, we just want to come and be reminded of that, uh, but also to intentionally set our hearts and our affection on you, God, knowing that you love us and care for us. We pray that you would teach us this morning from your word, that you would transform us by the power of your spirit, and that we would leave today different than the people we came in. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title this morning is the title of our theme through Romans, which is what we were singing earlier, that God is for us. We come this week to the conclusion. It's the climax of chapter 8. But it's not just the conclusion and climax of chapter 8, it's really the climax of where Paul has been from chapter 5, and really, some would want to argue, and I would tend to agree, it's really what Paul has been talking about the entire, throughout the entire letter so far. If there was one central point that Paul has been building up to, it is this, that God is for you, that He is not against you which let's just stop for a moment and think about that gospel truth, that gospel truth that belongs only to those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, that God is for you, that he is not against you. It's really quite astounding and glorious. And we'll think about that for a second because for some, just the revelation that God is real, that God exists, that he created all of this is enough to truly change your life, but then to discover further that God is not only real, that not, He not only made all of this, but that He is personal, that He can be truly known 
by you, by me, by people, as we are fully known by Him, which again is also a wonderful truth. However, at the same time, to think about that even further, it can also be quite unsettling too, to think that the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-holy God knows everything, everything about you and me, the things we've done, good, bad, and ugly. He's seen it all. Again, this can be quite unsettling. I mean, if our friends knew the things that we thought or did or whatever in our past, we would certainly think that they would be against us. So to think that God is not only not against us, but that He is for us, this is amazing truth, gospel truth. And the reason why we struggle with this, to think about God in this way, how could He possibly not be against us, is because we often think about relationships, we think about love in in a transactional sense. And what I mean by that is we think about love in that it only exists as long as the other person that we are loving loves us in return and with the same amount or measure by which we love them, right? It's, we kind of think of it in the 50-50, but God's love is not, it doesn't work this way, as we'll discover more this morning. His love is far greater, His love for you is far greater than your love could ever be for Him in return. Still, we often use this framework This framework that we get either from society or whatever it is, this framework for love and relationships, this is what we encounter, this is what we understand, but we think about God in these terms, and that makes it, again, a bit unsettling. So then, to hear what Paul is saying here, to be assured that God is for us, for His people, and not against us, this is a truly life-changing reality. But this is the glorious assurance that Paul wants to give to his children through Paul's letter to the Romans. This is what he wants us to know. And I want to start just by reading the first question that Paul asks in verse 31. We can read it together. He writes, what then shall we say to these things? Let's just pause. Before we move on and read the rest of this amazing text, I want to consider this first question because this question gives us the context for what he's about to say. Our question back to Paul would be this, Paul, what things are you talking about? What is this in reference to? And like I said in the beginning, what Paul is about to say is a conclusion to what he has been saying all throughout chapters 5 through 8, but then even before that, all the way back to chapter 1. So again, what are those things? Well, I'm glad some of you asked what those things are. You see, from the opening of his letter, Paul has made it clear that because of human sinfulness and the depths of human depravity, the world is a broken place. Newsflash, the world is a broken place. And is therefore, this may not be a newsflash for some, is subject to the righteous and just wrath of God. Because of original sin, this is the default position and condition of every single human being born into this world. It's a paradox in the sense that the Bible tells us we are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. We see this in Psalm 139. And yet, the paradox is that we are also woefully distorted by sin and fallenness. 
So it's against this great darkness that Paul tells us about that the light of the gospel shines even brighter. You see, the question every person ought to be asking in light of this darkness, in light of this default position is this, well, how can any unrighteous person become righteous or right with God again? And, and throughout human history, almost every civilization in some way has tried to resolve that cosmic issue and tension. Earlier in the letter, Paul writes that one of the many ways, but perhaps the most profound way, that humans have done this, as Paul said, is he, they suppress the truth. In general revelation, they deny the natural order of things, the way that God has created things. They suppress the truth of personal truth, morality, good and evil. They redefine that. They call what is good evil and what is evil good. And then, of course, they suppress the spiritual truth, what God has revealed to us through His Word and in the Scriptures, which isn't too hard for us to grasp, right, any of these things, because the thing that humanity has done from the very beginning, they still do today. They suppress the truth. They push it away. They redefine it. They don't want to hear it. They ignore it. Perhaps some of you were this way before you came to Christ, before you came to faith in Jesus. Maybe some are still that way. Yet those whom God is at work in, as Paul has been describing to us in these things, those who have had their eyes opened by the grace of God to see the glorious light of salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ, they have come to know the answer to that question, which is this, that the way a person is made right with God, the way a person is justified before Him is through faith and faith alone. It's not by religious activity it's not by our morality. It's not by being a good person that God accepts us. It's not by what family you come from or don't come from. It's not based on your politics or where you find yourself on the socioeconomic spectrum. It is not based on anything really in you, but whether or not you actually let go of all of those things. It's not about where you come from or who you are. In fact, all of those things are keeping you away from Christ. And so it's letting go of those things and clinging to Christ alone through faith alone, which is by God's grace alone. The good news is this, that God exists and that He knows you, and even though He knows you, He loves you. Isn't that incredible? He chose to save you as a demonstration of that love. To save you from what? From the penalty of your sin and mine. And the means He used to save his chosen people was nothing more and nothing less than to pay the penalty himself by dying in your place and in mine. At the right time, Paul said in chapter 5, at the right time, Christ died for good people like you and me. No, that's not what he says. He died for the ungodly. This is the great wonder of the gospel that Paul has been declaring, what he's been describing to those who are like, hey, Paul, I really just don't know how that's working, and what he's been defending to those who want to argue and oppose this gospel of justification by faith alone. But as we come now to the end of chapter 8, these things that Paul has been talking about, 
the things that he has been, again, declaring, describing, and defending. What Paul is now saying is, okay, all arguments are over. All debates are done. Paul has addressed every one of his opposers and those who want to question his gospel of justification by faith alone. And now all that's left for Paul is to just simply bask in the glory and revel in the wonder of this gospel assurance that every Christian has through Christ. This section can be divided into just two parts. Verses 31 to 36, Paul lists a bunch of rhetorical questions, and all of them assume a muted response. His, the people who are listening to these questions really have no answer other than either to agree or say no, whatever it is. And the second section, it flows from the first section, but it shows the lavish extent of the saving benefits of Christ, and they flow out of the love of the Father. So the first section flows out of the work of Christ, and the second section flows out of the love of the Father. But let's just read verses 31 to 36 together. What then shall we say to these things? Again, all these gospel truths. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We'll pause there. After that first question in verse 31, Paul goes on to ask five rhetorical questions. Really, it's six, but the sixth one is connected to the fifth. And every single one of them assumes this muted response, meaning it leaves everyone who wants to debate or oppose without words. And the first question is the one that is the hinge that all of the other questions swing on. And it's this, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if we were just to ask the second part of that question and ignore the first part, it, it completely changes the answer. Who can be against us? Uh, well, anyone and everyone? That's who is against us, right? The answer, well, while we continue to live in this fallen world, this broken world, and in this fallen flesh, and with the evil one still trying to wreak havoc on this world, impacted by the fall, guess what? We're on enemy ground here. But the good news is that the question does not stop there, right? Or it's not only that. The question is this, since God is for us, does it really matter who stands against us? Does it really matter who opposes us? As you think about that question, I want you to picture in your minds the stories of the Old Testament when God's people were constantly under enemy attack by the Philistines, by the Amalekites, whatever. Name all the different groups of people. And in almost every single situation, God's people, they were outnumbered, outskilled, outresourced, outstrategized, except they had one thing that everybody else 
did not have. God was on their side. And over and over and over again, as they looked to God in faith to deliver them from their enemies, God came through again and again and again. It didn't matter who came up against them because God was for His people. And with that as a picture, with that as a a metaphor, in a more personal and spiritual sense, God has not just defeated enemies like that, but defeated our greatest enemy, sin and death and Satan, through the death of His Son. We stand, I guess as it were, in an open battlefield with no one there to oppose us. All enemies have retreated away because all enemies have been defeated. This is what Paul is saying. This gospel truth also then is referenced in the next verse and also serves as the basis of the next question. Let's look at it. Verse 32, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The first question focuses on those who oppose us. And there are many who do, but their power, their influence over us has been stripped away by the blood of Jesus. Not by our power, but by His power. But this second question focuses on the resources to live the life God has called His people to live. And it's a sliding scale, right? From greater to the lesser. Since God did not spare His own Son, but gave him up for us all. And that idea of giving him up is in the Gospels, the same word used of when Pontius Pilate gave Jesus over or gave him up to be crucified. What Paul is saying is that God gave his son over to die in our place. He says, if God did that, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, we're standing there in an open battlefield and and the victory is won and we're kind of standing there going, now what? Now what? What am am I supposed to do? And God's like, well, I've given you the resources now to go and live this free life in grace and in Christ. In other words, as Paul was saying here, if God has done the hardest thing, the most difficult, the most painful, the most selfless act imaginable, why would he withhold from us all that we need in order to live life in fellowship with him, both now and forever? You see, the fascinating thing about God's salvation is it's not, it's not just about being forgiven. It's not just about having your, your slate wiped clean. It's also about God granting us the righteous status we need in order to be in a relationship with Him and bring glory to Him with our lives. I've said for the last few weeks as we've been here in chapter 8 that this chapter, the theme of this chapter, is all about our assurance But one could also argue that one of the major themes of this chapter is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. In other words, not only has God granted us salvation, we need it through Jesus, but He's given us the means of our sanctification, that we can actually be different, but it's through the Holy Spirit. But there's more. Paul writes another question in verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So the first question, we have no opposition. Now this, we have no accusation. No opposition and no accusation. Now on the surface, we may think of a question like this and think, 
Well, there's a lot of people who bring charges against us, right? There's a lot of people who say things about us. And even thinking of Jesus, didn't the Pharisees raise up a bunch of people to bring charges against Jesus? Didn't they bring charges against the apostles in the book of Acts that resulted in them getting beaten? And the answer, of course, is yes. But we know in both of those scenarios, these were false accusations. These were accusations that were brought up in order to condemn them, right? And, and Paul is not saying that now that we're Christians, we're not going to have people who try and raise up accusations against us, who try and say things about our character or about our agenda or about whatever else in order to cancel us, I guess you could say, to borrow a modern language right now. Paul is not naive. He's not idealistic or delusional about the reality of these questions, specifically this one. Paul's point is simply to say this, when those people make accusations against you, in God's courthouse, there's no way those accusations are going to make it into His room. People can say all they want about you in the hallway, but where it matters most, the gospel has silenced those accusers, which naturally moves Paul to pen his next question. Who is to condemn? Verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. In other words, was condemned in our place. More than that, he writes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Since the accusations have been silenced, it's only natural to assume, well, if there's no one there to raise up a verdict, a final verdict of guilty against us, well, then there's no way that we can be condemned either. And because Jesus Christ sat and was condemned in our place for us, well, there's no more need for us to be condemned because sin has been paid for. This brings us back to where Paul started this chapter. Uh, in verse 1, he writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. This is why we don't have to be condemned. Why we won't be condemned is because Jesus was condemned in our place. Before Christ, before placing your faith in Him, condemnation is all there was. Outside of Christ, there is condemnation. These assurances, these promises are for the Christian only. The fact of the matter is, sin has made us all guilty and justly deserving of condemnation before God. But the good news is, is that God acted on our behalf. We couldn't save ourselves, but God, being rich in mercy, chose instead to not condemn us, but to give His life in place of ours, which is really just the craziest thing about the gospel, isn't it? That the guilty get to go free in order that they might freely live for God, while the innocent, the innocent one, Jesus, was punished? This is amazing good news, gospel truth. And because the price of sin has already been paid for in full by the sacrifice of Jesus, there is no more room, no more occasion for condemnation. This is what Paul is saying. And his point, or the point that he makes there, verse 34, that not only did Jesus die in our place, but God validated that sacrifice when He raised up His Son from the grave. 
and then elevated him to a position of power in order that he might unceasingly, constantly, 24-7, make intercession for us. In other words, when our accusers come, and they will, Jesus is there standing before the throne of God, declaring very simply in the halls of heaven, this is my child, they are acquitted, they are accepted, and they are loved by me. This is the intercession that Jesus offers to us. Because of Christ, we don't have to fear again that God will cast us away to a fate that we deserve because of our sin, but instead has predestined us to salvation through faith in His Son, Jesus. And again, all of this is meant to affirm and establish the Christian's assurance of faith, that when those moments come, and they do come, and they will come, and they'll come again, when we are led to doubt the work of God in our lives, when we are led to doubt God's love for us still and His work for us, We can know from these objective truths, the gospel, and the subjective work of God in our lives personally, that we are truly children of God, and nothing, nothing is left for us to fear or be ashamed of, which leads to the final question, verse 35, which I think is kind of what he's been building to. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Do you understand what Paul is saying in that question and answer? You see, some think that hardships, like the ones Paul has mentioned here, and these are extreme hardships, aren't they? That they are actually evidences that God has abandoned us. After all, doesn't God just want peace and comfort and prosperity for us? Some would be led to believe, when in fact the opposite is true. The verse that Paul quotes there in verse 36 is from Psalm 44, 22, and the context of that psalm is the same context that Paul is using it for here. It's to show that when we suffer as God's people, when we are persecuted, when we have accusations made against us, all of this is because God has chosen us. It is because God loves us. The world opposes us because they oppose Him. This is what Paul is saying. It reminds me of what Jesus said in John 10. And and based on that, even when all of those things happen, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. But it reminds me of what Jesus said in John 10. My sheep, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand or out of the Father's hand. I do want to point out that the extremes here, no one and, and greater than all, right? Meaning nothing, nothing can pull you away from the love of Christ. Personally, out of the list of questions that Paul offers to the believer here in chapter 8, I can't think of a more relevant assurance for daily Christian living than this one right here. To know that no matter what I go through, no matter what experience I have, God will never change his mind about me. And he will never change his mind about you. 
There is never a reason to think or fear that I may get to the finish line and right at the very end stumble and all of a sudden go, God's like pointing, laughing at me going, ha ha. Maybe you, like me, binge and watch those YouTube videos of, of people who celebrate too early. They're really funny. Uh, but they, a runner will get to the finish line. They think they've totally beat somebody. They start celebrating, slapping hands, and they trip on themselves and fall, and someone passes them. We think about our Christian life like that sometimes. We fear, man, I've gone all of this way, but right at the very end, I trip, and God's not, God's not going to finish that work that I hoped that He would. Again, there's never a reason to think this, because He who began a good work in you, the Bible says, He will bring it to completion. And even in those moments and even in those seasons where a true son or a true daughter of God, when they wander in prodigal living, the good news, as one hymn writer put it, the holy hound of heaven will not relent until he has found every lost sheep, every lost coin, every lost son or daughter that belongs to him. He will not relent. Now, this is not to say, and Paul's already talked about this, this is not to say that we should put God's love and his grace and our relationship with him to the test. We've already established that fact earlier in the chapters. It is to say that now God has done this great work for us. We should live for him, not put that to the test and go do whatever we want. It is to say that even though when we fail, and we will, God's love and acceptance of us never will. From personal sin to indirect suffering to direct persecution for our faith that may even lead to martyrdom for some, not even sword. The sword of those who oppose the gospel can separate us from the love that God has for his kids. And again, all of this is based not on any work of our own, but in the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's only through him and by him and for him that all these Christian assurances are ours. But if our assurance is sourced in the work of Christ, what he's done for us in the past and what he still does for us in the present, our experience of that is sourced in the love of the Father, which is the foundation for the next half of this section. Let's go ahead and read just verse 37. Paul writes, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, this is a very interesting conclusion, one that I think we all need to sort of mull over uh, the rest of this week, because I think that far too many Christians today seem to think that the evidence of our being conquerors, we're more than conquerors in Jesus Christ, is that for some way or in somehow we hold political power or social power or economic power of whatever country or state or society we reside in. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. Because to think about our being more than conquerors in this world in that way is not to think too big, it's actually to think too small about the power that we have now through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the power of this world, it's fleeting, it's passing away. To be honest, I look at some of these politicians today or people that are in power, and I think it's only a matter of time before they won't have that power anymore. It's just, it's just a fact. It's fleeting. And we don't have to worry about that. We really don't. It's all passing away. The only power that really matters, that lasts forever, is the power that comes to us 
through the gospel. Don't you remember what Paul's thesis of Romans was? He told us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to the Romans. Rome was the epicenter of power in that day. And Paul is writing and saying to the Romans, hey, you really want to know what power is? It's not Caesar. It's not that signet ring. It's not that. It's not that army. It's not politics. It's not economy. It's not any of that stuff. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power that gives victory is not exercised in this world. It transcends this world. In fact, the reason why Paul says that we are more than conquerors is because when the world tries to stop us, when it tries to, to, to put us out like water on a fire, when it tries to do that, we just spread even more. In fact, we look more like Jesus when the world tries to persecute us. Isn't that what we learned last week in Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30? That God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Even what seems like defeat toward us or against His people or failure in the hands of our great God and Savior, it's actually a tool of grace makes us look more like Jesus, makes us store up for ourselves treasure in heaven and look more like his son. With that said, Paul returns to the final two verses to this theme of perseverance. He writes in verse 38, I am sure, let me just stop there for a second. This is a personal statement now. It's not just doctrinal anymore. Now he's saying personally, I, Paul the apostle, am sure, and hopefully every Christian would say personally, anecdotally even, I am sure of these things, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of that is to say, the extent, the lavishness, the height, the depth, all of that of the love of God transcends every measurement that we could possibly point to. There's nothing on earth. There's no spiritual power in heaven. There is no window of space or time. There is no power in hell. There is nothing within the scope of all of God's creation that is able to steal you away from the love that God has for you. You know, when it comes to the, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, whether or not I'm going to make it to completion or not, and whether or not the believer will, in fact, make it to the end and declare, as Paul declared to, to Timothy when he said, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith, and remember that? It's really less about our effort and what we bring to the table, and it's more about God and His work in us and for us and through us. The confidence and assurance that we have isn't sourced in the things we do, but in the God who works on our behalf constantly. If it was sourced in us, then we probably don't have much confidence or assurance. Because to be quite honest, there are those days when, when we're less lovable, when we're, when we're not putting the energy or effort that we think we could or should. I was just talking to uh, someone this last week who did some remodeling on their house, and, and I, I kind of asked, so, so what projects have you left sort of undone? Because <laughs> we all have those projects, right? You do a big project and it's like 90% done, but you're 100% done with it, right? And, and that's the way we act, sometimes even in our Christian walk too, right? Man, I've gotten this far, 
yes, I mean, I'm done. I'm tired now. The good news is that God's never tired and he's never done. He will bring to completion that which he has started in you. But going back to what I said in the beginning, we can't see God's love or we often see God's love as transactional, but we can't see it that way because he doesn't love us because of what he gets out of us. He is perfectly and completely secure in himself. He doesn't need our approval of him. What we need, though, is what he has already given us through Christ, which is his approval of us, and we receive that by faith. So what application can we walk away from this morning with all of these great truths? And I would imagine there are a great many applications for a text like this in the life of any believer, and my hope is that the Holy Spirit has been talking to you personally But for those of you who doubt God's love, there's no cause to. For those who doubt if God is working in your life, you don't need to. For those who doubt God's care and acceptance of you, you don't need to. There is no, for those who are plagued with fear and anxiety about the future or the present that we are living in, the circumstances that we go through, why do we worry about those things when God is in control of it all? and has promised to work it out all for good. For those who worry that God will one day give up on you, you can cast those anxieties aside. And for those who are timid, I think this is another great application, for those who are timid to share the gospel with others, thinking, well, what if they reject me? Who cares? God has accepted you. And maybe, just maybe, they might hear, wait, what? God is for me? And he's not against me? This whole time I've been growing up thinking God knows everything about me and and there's no way he would ever let me into his heaven. There's no way he would ever want a relationship with me. There's no way. How could God possibly love me? This is the greatest truth that we can possibly tell someone. God has seen it all and he is for you and he's not against you. And he proved that by sending his son Jesus to live the life you couldn't live, sinless and perfect, and then to offer that life up on the cross in your place and mine. This is the great news of the gospel that we hold fast, that holds us fast in Christ. Why don't we pray and then we'll have a time of communion together. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. We thank you that they are ours in Christ by faith. We thank you that you have removed the blinders, those spiritual blinders from our eyes that kept us from you, that caused us to to suppress the truth of who you are and what you have done for us and your love for us. And we thank you that you are doing a great work in our lives and through us, in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces. And we pray that, God, you would help us to be that beacon of light in this place. Not our light, but yours, shining through us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the ushers here in a moment are going to distribute the elements of communion. And we as a church... Uh, practice this every week, which for us is a reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for us. When we take these elements that Jesus Christ instituted uh, in the Lord's Supper, when he, with his disciples, sat down and passed out, distributed bread, and said, this is my body, take and eat, and this is my blood, take and drink, and these were symbols, these were signs of these great gospel truths, that it's only through Jesus that our sins are forgiven, and it's only through him that we have a relationship with Christ. And we receive these by faith. If you have not placed your faith in Christ, but you're still thinking about it, 
I just encourage you to pass the elements along, but if you have placed your faith in Jesus, then I encourage you to participate in this practice with us. And afterward, we are going to have a baptism. So when communion is over, the service is not over, and we are going to have a baptism right after that. But I'll pray for communion, and then uh, the ushers will pass them out and hold on to them, and then Cody will lead us in taking them together. Father, thank you again for the opportunity for us to celebrate what Christ has done for us through the elements of communion. Thank you also that we get to witness and participate in a baptism this morning, which is a demonstration of someone uh, who has given their life to you by faith. And I pray that in all these things, uh, you would be glorified and your church strengthened and built up. And we pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen.